My hope is in the Lord, who gave himself for me. Hi, I'm John Hemminghouse, speaking for the Beacon of Hope broadcast, a ministry of Calkins Baptist Church near Milanville, Pennsylvania. For a number of months now, we've been following Jesus around during his time on earth as described in the four Gospels of the Bible. Today, we come to a question and answer session that Christ had with several religious leaders as well as the common people of his day. So if you had the chance to be at a question and answer session with Jesus, would you go? I believe many of you would. While we cannot turn back the clock and be there, we can examine the Gospel writers' accounts of this incident and in a sense, listen into one of the most fascinating conversations in the Bible. Since God made sure that this event was included in his word, in a real sense, God wants you to be part of the audience. Before he was done, Jesus had a question for his listeners as well, so I hope you'll join us for a question and answer session with Christ. Well, good morning. It's Pastor Lane Jones from the Beacon of Hope broadcast, and would it not be fascinating to be involved in a question and answer session with Jesus Christ? Now, my opinion is that the vast majority of people, Christians and non-Christians, and even atheists alike, would, if given the opportunity, would be lining up to have a chance to ask questions of Jesus of Nazareth and to listen to his answers. Matter of fact, a number of years ago, uh, Larry King, many of you would remember him as a, a man who was renowned for interviewing people. They asked him the question, if you could interview anyone in human history, who would it be? And his answer was Jesus Christ. And they said, well, if you had a chance to interview Christ, what question would you ask him? And interestingly enough, King said, I would ask him, are you virgin born? Because he said, that would define everything for me. Isn't that very interesting? So let's suppose that you were given the chance to be part of a group that would meet with Jesus and be able to ask him whatever question you would like. Would you go? I imagine that most of you would. I certainly would. Now, let me ask you another. If you could ask Christ a question, what question would you ask? Maybe the meaning of life, or how to obtain eternal life, or what is heaven like, or is Jesus, is he really God? Or how can we attain world peace? Or what about the most vital things, what are the most important things to do? Well, what if you could go and listen to Jesus answer questions, but you yourself were not allowed to directly ask a question, would you still go? And again, I think that I certainly would, and actually I think that many of of you would as well. And that's what brings us to our message for today. Actually, through the pages of the New Testament, you and I have an opportunity to do just that. Late in Jesus' ministry, within a few days of his crucifixion, thousands of Jews from all over the world were gathering in Jerusalem for the annual Passover celebration, which is the biggest festival of the Jewish year. Keep in mind that the temple is a massive complex. Much is happening throughout its different courts and buildings. Sacrifices are being offered. People are gathered to pray. There are, in all probability, people reading God's Word and discussing it, others milling around and enjoying the many sights and sounds. But Jesus is the most famous and controversial person in the nation. And so when it becomes known that he is there, you can understand why a crowd begins to form around him. Some of the top religious leaders in the nation are also there. Many of them privately are enemies of Christ. Soon an informal question and answer session begins with Jesus as the the answerer, and that is what we want to listen in on today. Now the problem that I just want to warn you about before we enter into that discussion is we often are interested in listening to what Jesus has to say but we can struggle with willingness to act upon what Jesus has to say. And I just pray you're not in that category. If you, Even if you are, though, I'd encourage you to listen in. 
on this question and answer with Christ. And by the way, at the end, Jesus himself will ask his audience a question, a very profound, very important question. I hope you'll hang on to that. Before we get started, let's ask God's blessing upon his word. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the opportunity of being able to look at this important event in Christ's life where people were asking him questions and he was answering them. And even when he had a chance to ask them a question as well. We pray that you'll open our minds and hearts to understand what we need to from this time, and we rejoice at each person that's able to tune in. May it be a blessing to them, Lord. May it be challenging and stirring for us all. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, question number one is kind of a unusual one. Again, I think I might be sitting there thinking, why in the world do we have to talk about this? But it was an important question of that day, and that is, should God's children pay taxes to an impressive government? And what I've done, there are three different Gospels that all talk about this question and answer session, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so what I've done is I've taken all three accounts and tried to put them together into a narrative so that you can kind of listen to it as we go through it. It's, it's I would say a lot of it comes out of Matthew and Mark, some of it out of Luke, but we take the three gospel accounts together. And so here's how that first question comes about. It says, then the Pharisees and Herodians. Now, the Pharisees are a very strict religious organization. Uh, the They would be the very the conservatives of the day, both religiously and in, in politics as well. Herodians are, would be on the other pole, okay? They would be far more liberal. They would be... Um, uh, not Bible believers, by and large, and very much politically liberal in their uh, ideas as well. For instance, not so much loyal to the nation of Israel as a whole, um, being more pragmatic when it comes to being under the Roman Empire's rule. So these two groups that are really at different poles have come together, and they're both on one mission, and that is we really want to take down Jesus of Nazareth. So then the Pharisees and Herodians went and plotted how to catch him in his words that they might entangle him in his talk. So they sent spies who pretended to be righteous that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor. When they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men but teach the way of God in truth. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? Now, the issues behind this question are several. Uh, matter of fact, I'm going to express what's going on behind this question in with four questions uh, on, on from my standpoint to hopefully help you understand what's going on. Question number one, that a lot of people were asking in that day concerning this taxation issue is, was it not evil for the Romans to oppress the people of God? So the Roman Empire was dominating the, the nation of Israel, uh, charging them many times high taxes that destroyed a lot of their lives financially. So the question number one that a lot of Jews were asking, was it not evil for the Romans to oppress God's people? And the answer obviously was yes that the Roman Empire by this time had become very oppressive. Question number two, did, the, did not their tax money fund the Roman army that was oppressing them? That was the kind of the, uh, what would you say, the, the sword that kept everybody in line, the Roman army. And the answer again was absolutely yes, that's true. 
that the taxation that the, the nation of Israel as whether other nations across the whole region had to pay, that went into making the salaries, the weapons, etc., etc., of the Roman Empire. So, yes, that their tax money was actually going to their oppressors to fund the Roman army. Then that leads to question number three. Should not God's people be free? Doesn't God want his people to be free? Now, again, immediate answer that, that probably most all of us would say was, was yes. So we can see how, as a general rule, God desired for his people to be free of oppression, but history had not always shown that answer to be uh, the way we would expect it. There are many times in, in Israel's history where they went through times of oppression and where someone else was telling them what to do to rule over them. For instance, the Babylonians for many years uh, had uh, oppressed and conquered the nation of Israel. The, after them, the Persian Empire came into power, and for many years they also dominated Israel. Now, they were of a little easier hand than the Babylonians had been. But there still was that time. Then after the Persian Empire went down, the Greeks dominated the nation of Israel for many years, many decades. And sometimes the Greeks would treat them rather nicely. Alexander the Great actually was, was pretty good to many of the Jewish people. But some of his predecessors did horrific things. As a matter of fact, the, the whole uh, battle with the Maccabees was against the Greeks and their oppressive way that they were trying to ram their Greek culture and the Greek religion down the throat of the Jewish people who feared God. And, and that did not go over well and it shouldn't have. So we, if we believe, which I am convinced is so, and I hope you are too, that God's hand is on all of human history. doesn't mean he agrees with everything that goes on, but he certainly has a purpose for his people, even in times of affliction. Now, Romans 8, 28 had not been written yet, which says all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Now, it hadn't been written yet, but that principle is still true down through the human ages of, of history. So as believers, we understand that God is still up to good in our lives, even when we're going through difficult days, whether it be financial times or, in this case, the loss of the Israelis' freedom. But it was the simplistic answer to this question, should not God's people be free? The answer that many people were thinking in that day, and that is, yes, we should always be free. So that led num to numerous attempts in the nation of Israel for revolution and overthrow of the Roman Empire, and those attempts were fruitless and actually caused the death of, of multiplied thousands of people. This ultimately culminated in the total destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD and the elimination of the nation of Israel itself in 73 AD at the fall of the last Jewish stronghold in Masada. So the, the nation of Israel had a number of what they would call zealots who answered question number three, does God want his people to be free, with an absolutely yes all the time yes, not realizing that there is some nuance here, that sometimes God allows his people to be under oppression for his eternal purposes, which are only completely understood in the mind of God himself. That leads to question number four. If Jesus truly was the Messiah, had he not come to free them? 
Now, it was another assumption that almost all Jewish people would have believed in Jesus' day, that if, in fact, Jesus was the Messiah, then he would exalt his people, that is, the uh, true believers in the nation of Israel and elsewhere, and he would bring in world peace. Now, there are several prophecies that talk of Messiah's kingdom and reign over Israel and the peace that would be brought across the world as a result. And I will read you just merely two passages that predict this worldwide peace and that Messiah was to bring this to the earth from the Old Testament. The first one is in Psalm 2. I'm going to read verses 1 to 9. Listen to what it says. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves... And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, that's the Old Testament word for his Christ, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their courts from us. Now, this attitude is still prevalent in our world today, and that is the leaders of this world do not want God and his word telling them what to do. And you think about the major leaders across not just this land, but across the world, that is generally their stance. Had a number of people, powerful people, that just met in Davos. I know many of you may be familiar with that. And I will just tell you that the fear of God and the obedience to his word is not on their agenda at Davos. It's also not typically on the agenda in Washington, D.C. It's not on the agenda in so many nations of the world. So the kings of the earth are still in the same mode of saying, let us break God's bands asunder. That's how they look at it. The bonds of, of God's laws let's, and cast away his cords from us. We don't want God's law telling us what to do. Well, what's God's response to that? Verse four, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then shall he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure now, here's God speaking, yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Now, God's king there is the Messiah, the coming crisis. A thousand years, this is written before Jesus was born. He says, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. That's Jerusalem. So what he's saying is the Messiah is going to reign. God's going to do this uh, in Jerusalem. Verse 7, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now that's an interesting statement as well. This is God the Father speaking to the Messiah in this psalm saying, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now he's still, God's still speaking to his son. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. So Messiah is supposed to rule over all the nations of the earth. Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, who is Messiah going to break down like a, like a, a pot, a clay pot with a, with a rod of iron? Who's he going to break down like that? Those are the wicked rulers of the world. And specifically in this, honestly, when you look at the prophecies of the coming of Christ, this is going to be the Antichrist kingdom, his wicked kingdom that will be so destructive to people across this planet. So Psalm 2 would have been one of those psalms that the uh, the first century Jewish people and, and generations before them, they were looking for Messiah to come, who is going to reign on the throne of Jerusalem over all the kingdoms of the world. Now let me give you another passage, Isaiah chapter 11. 
And again, I'm going to read the first nine verses of this chapter. This also is poetry. It says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Now, Jesse was the father of David. So what, the, what Isaiah is saying already is that this rod comes out of David's line, David's father being Jesse. Now, what about this person? He says, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes nor decide by the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, the humble people of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall slay the wicked. So again, we see judgment that the Messiah is going to bring upon the evil. Now, put yourself in the first century's uh, uh, Jewish person's mind and heart. When he thinks of the wicked oppressor, who does he think about? He thinks about the Romans, the Roman Empire that's been dominating the nation of Israel for decades now. Let me keep reading in Psalm 11. I'm at verse, I'm, excuse me, Isaiah 11, verse 5. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt of his waist. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. What is, what is pictured here? In this kingdom of the Messiah, even the animal world, the meat eaters, the lions, the bear, the... the, uh, the uh, uh, other meat eaters that were mentioned here, the wolf, they're actually going to be at peace with their fellow animals. Verse 8, the nursing child shall play by the cobra hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Can you imagine a time on earth where even the animal kingdom, there's no more the killing of animal upon animal or animal upon human, and God saying the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord like the waters cover the sea. Can you imagine why then so many of the people in Jesus' generation were longing, desiring, many of them maybe prayed their whole lives that Messiah would come, deliver them from the oppression of the Romans, and bring in worldwide peace. But many of the religious leaders of Jesus' day really wanted no part of Christ because Jesus is teaching something a little different. It's, it's not merely, well, let's overthrow the Romans. He's not saying that at all, actually. Jesus is dealing with a far greater oppressor, and that is the issue of human sin. He's been talking about repentance. He's been talking about hypocrisy. Because the reality is you'll never be free, no matter what your politics are, no matter what how free of a government you live under, You'll never be truly free until your heart is free. And when you get freedom from sin and you're able to actually have a clear conscience and you're able to realize your forgiveness in Christ and have victory over the sins that bind you, that's the real bondage of man. So what's going on? Well, they've asked him this question about taxes. Well, do we have to pay taxes? Should we pay taxes to the Romans? Now, what was the goal of this question? Well, it was really threefold. Number one, catch Jesus saying something foolish. That's what 
They had, why they were there in the first place, they wanted to catch him in his words. Number two, betray Jesus to the Roman governor, who, by the way, was Pontius Pilate. Thirdly, let the Romans take care of Jesus. So if Jesus says to the audience of his day, no, 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 you don't need to pay taxes to the Romans, they're oppressors, yeah, don't do it. Those rascals would have turned right around and run to Pilate and said, hey, we got a revolutionary on our hands. This guy's trying to stir up people to rebel against Rome. And you better do something about it. And you could about trust that the Romans would have executed Jesus and put uh, the whole thing so that the Jewish leaders could take their hands off and say, oh, well, it's too bad. You know, Jesus uh, died, and, and what are we going to do about it? That's, what a terrible thing. But those dirty Romans did that. That's really what they were looking to do. The goal, then, is to catch Jesus saying something foolish, to betray him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Now, the other thing is, if Jesus doesn't say, if, if he doesn't go along and say, um, don't pay your taxes, if he says instead, uh, you know, you need to pay your taxes, if he says that, they know that they're going to split Jesus' followers. Because many of them believe that we are supposed to be free, we shouldn't be paying the Romans this oppressive tax anyway, and so Jesus would lose those followers. And so they're trying to put him in what they call a horns of a dilemma. So their approach it has they involve spies who pretend to be Jesus' followers. Also, there are people, especially listening, just to find fault with him and twist his words around. Thirdly, they're going to—they're using flattery. Oh, they're saying—and let me quote them again: "Teacher, we know that you are true. Care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men, but teach uh, the way of God in truth." So they're giving him all this flattery, but it's really a setup to try to get him to say something foolish. And so then this specially designed question is really about getting him in trouble. So if Jesus tells his Jewish audience to pay their taxes, he will lose many of his followers who do not want to pay their taxes and uh, fund the, the pagan Roman oppressors. And But if Jesus tells his audience not to pay their taxes, then they're going to turn right around and go to Pilate and say, you need to eliminate this guy. Matter of fact, in case you doubt me on this, look up Matthew, uh, Luke chapter 23 and verses 1 and 2. You don't, you can do it sometime later. You can write that reference down. Luke 23, 1 and 2. And when they actually arrested Jesus uh, just a couple days later, brought him before Pontius Pilate, they lied about his answer here and said that he is calling himself a king. That was really, that was true. But saying he was trying to stir up rebellion against Rome, that was not true. And they also said he was telling the people not to pay their taxes, and that was not true. See, how do you know that? Well, listen to Jesus' response then. He says this, But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? See how Jesus is going after the sin issue? So he sees through their deception. He rebukes their hypocrisy. But he's going to answer the question as well. He says, bring me a denarius that I may see it. Now, a denarius was a piece, uh, a Roman coin. So he, a he asked them to, with the request, would show me the, the tax money. Well, they, they brought him a piece of tax money probably very quickly because many of them were using Roman money, although the, many of the Jews thought that that was evil in itself because there was an image on there. So then he says to them, whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. He said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. 
When they had heard these words, they marveled and kept silent and left him and went their way. Now, so he had this request, show me the tax money. Then he asked him a question, okay, whose image and superscription is on this? And the answer was obvious. It bore the image of Caesar. Now, this is an interesting point. They could easily produce a coin because many of them were using that coin in their daily business. And so Jesus gives them a principle, and that is Caesar has a right to expect interest back from what he produces. He's the one that produced the coin. They were the ones that actually were getting blessed by it because they're involved in commerce and, and use of money is very helpful for commerce. So they're profiting in, in a certain respect for the coinage that Caesar had provided them. So Caesar would therefore have a right to have some interest back on that. Now, Jesus also went on to say, so he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. Caesar has a right to ask you for some money if he's providing you a service. But give back to God the things that are God's. God rightly expects interest back from his investment in his people. Something that they weren't even going there. And you'll notice the reaction of Jesus' enemies. Now, these are people determined to reject Jesus, people trying to get him in trouble. They marveled at his response, and they decided for, for temporarily to leave him alone. They actually walked away at that point. Now, that was one group, but there's more people around on this question and answer session. And so we have a second question. And again, if you and I are sitting in that audience, we may look at this one especially and say, really? If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Beacon of Hope broadcast, a ministry of Calkins Baptist Church. Now, back to the message. Why are we asking this question? But to the next group, it was a big deal. These people are called Sadducees. Sadducees are, are a group of religious people, many of them very powerful. They also, on the political side and the religious side, would be, would be considered liberals because they really don't believe the Scripture is inspired. So you know how today... And politically in our country, liberals believe that the, the Constitution is a living document. Basically what that means is you can morph it uh, as you would wish as time goes by. Well, the Sadducees would have believed that with the exception of the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses, that they believed were absolutely inspired and you could not change them. But beyond that, all of the Psalms and the prophets and all of that, um, they would have rejected that as authoritative. So the Sadducees are an interesting group, they, but they do not believe, because of focusing on those first five books, they don't believe the resurrection is found there. And so they do not believe in a resurrection. They believe basically you die and that's it. They do not believe in miracles. It's very similar to an atheistic position, to be quite honest with you, materialistic position. And these are some of the biggest religious leaders in the nation, including the high priest himself. So this group of people are staying around. They didn't just kind of march away. And they have a question concerning marriage in heaven, of all things. We'll see why. Then some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him. And they asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. That's called leveret marriage. The idea, again, is that you want to pass down inheritances successively to, to generation after generation. And so if you have a man and he dies before being able to father a child, he was married, but he was unable to father a child before his death, then uh, if he's got a brother, 
that brother would marry his brother's widow, and their first child that they would have would carry on the name of the dead brother. That's how it would work. So the Sadducees bring up that law. They say, now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and dying, he left no offspring. And the second took her, and he died, nor did he leave any offspring. The third likewise. So seven had her and left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as a wife. So evidently, these people who don't believe in the resurrection anyway, they thought they had a scenario that made the resurrection look ridiculous. Uh, you, you know, how are you going to sort out whose wife this woman should be? Because all seven guys married her, none of them had any children, so it would seem like almost a coin flip, and they thought it was ridiculous then to believe that there could be the resurrection of the dead with, with such a scenario possible. Now, I know that may not resonate very much with you. It doesn't resonate much with me, but that's what they thought. Now, um, what is Jesus' response to this? Because their question is, well, in the resurrection, whose wife should she be? Well, Christ says they've got two problems. So Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. Now, these people, when Christ says they don't know their scriptures very well, that's, it's the truth. What Christ is saying is the truth, but I'll just tell you this, they're not very happy to hear that one. That's to their minds maybe an insult, because you're telling us we don't know our scriptures, and Jesus is saying that. You don't know the scriptures very well, and you also don't know the power of God. Well, why does he say that? He says, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are counted worthy to attain that age, he's talking about those who are worthy to go to heaven, and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. So he's saying there isn't any marriage in heaven. So that whole argument that they set up, like a balloon, think of it, Jesus kind of pops it with one simple pinprick saying, your whole idea of marriage in heaven isn't, isn't real. Now, so that, that just kind of blows that argument away. They don't know. By the way, they don't know the power of God because, first of all, there is a resurrection. Christ will point that out in just a second. But secondly, is God so weak that he can't figure out, if he wanted to, who she's going to be married to? Now, we don't have to know what his system was, but that wouldn't be a problem with God. See, he's saying you don't know your scriptures, you don't know God's power. But now, uh, what about this whole idea, because they don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. Everybody knows that. They're, the Sadducees don't believe that. So Jesus is going to answer that one as well. He says, but concerning the, the, the dead, that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses? Now, see, this was what they absolutely said was authoritative. They did not believe the rest of the Old Testament, but they did believe the first five books. And they thought they, and they, were, they prided themselves on very strictly following them. So now Jesus is going to take them back to those first five books, all right? But concerning the resurrection of the dead, that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses in the burning bush passage, and that's in the book of Exodus, chapter 3, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living, for all live to him. Therefore, you are greatly mistaken. Now, what's his point? 
they're wrong on the issue of marriage in heaven, first of all, but secondly, they're greatly wrong. This is a huge error on the idea of denying the resurrection. And what Jesus points out is when the Lord appeared to Moses at the burning bush, again, a passage that they would accept as absolutely authoritative. What does God say? He doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. That would make a little bit of sense because if they're dead, he could say, well, hey, I was their God. But he doesn't say that. He said, I am their God. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. That means they must still exist. Otherwise, it would be past tense. And when Christ pointed that out, he just crushed their idea that there's no resurrection. Now, all right, so there's a third question that pops up. And finally, someone asked Jesus a meaningful question. Like the first two, and I it was the first one was just going after trying to trip him up to either divide him from his followers or number two, to, to get him in trouble with Rome. Second question was trying to humiliate him and trying to undermine the resurrection. Both of those questions, he completely um, blew their minds at what they were expecting. Third question is actually an intelligent question, and that is, is this. Let me read it to you. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, kind of they had, remember, had walked away a little bit earlier. Evidently, some of them were still around, or maybe they came back by now. They gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Now, that's a decent question. They're asking Jesus, what's the most important thing that we need to be doing out of the Old Test, out of, out of the law? Again, there's no, they don't think of it as Old Testament at that point. They're just thinking of it as the law. And so this is a far better question. What's, what's the most important commandment? And Christ actually gives this man a two-fold answer. He says, well, let me let him say it, answer for himself. Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. So the greatest commandment is to love God with all your being. Now, let me just say this. Without God's help, you nor I are ever going to get that one done without his help. But this clearly is the commandment of God that the Lord desires more than anything else. And, and you know, what a compliment this is to you and I as human beings. For instance, if you went into the Army or any other military branch, and it's an honorable service, obviously, but your commander really isn't interested, and he shouldn't be interested in your affection. He's not interested that you love him or like him or even respect him as a human being. He wants your obedience. He wants your respect for him as an officer. He doesn't really care what you think about him behind his back. He's thinking about what he can get out of you. That's quite. That's what's necessary. How can this man become a better soldier and help our country to defend itself? So what your opinion of him is really doesn't matter. Same thing with many of your bosses at work. They're not really interested in whether you like them or not at the end of the day. They're interested more in what you can do to help the company make money and to help the business thrive. And we understand that. But God himself, 
Think of it. God himself says more than anything you can do for me, more than how many poor people you can help or how many people you can share the gospel with and help them to be in heaven, more than anything you can do for me, here's what I want more than anything else. I want you to love me. Isn't that amazing? When God did the Ten Commandments, Many scholars have summarized those commandments under what they call the two tables. Now, when you think of table, don't think of kitchen table. Think of the two uh, stone tables, the two tablets that Moses hewed out. And on table number one, or tablet number one, are the first four commandments. On tablet number two are the last six, as many people organize them. And you can see why, because the first four commandments deal with your love for God. What are they? Number one, no other gods before me. What is he saying? I want you to love me supremely. Number two, no graven images, which means this, don't make up your own God. Don't just decide, well, I don't like the, the one true God. I'm going to make up my own. That's what graven images is all about. Love me supremely. Number three, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Why do you not take God's name in vain? Well, because you love him, you respect him, you honor him. Number four, remember the Sabbath day. Well, what was the Sabbath day's purpose? Well, God was trying to give you a break, give you a day off. But also, it's a time when you can worship God, spend time with God. My wife and I were just talking before I started this broadcast. We both are very busy people, and it's like tonight, after I'm done preaching this message, I'm going to take time to be with my wife, to have some time with her, to enjoy her presence, her with, with me as well. Hopefully she'll enjoy my presence as well. Why? Because we love each other. We want to be around each other. God feels that way about you. Can you imagine that? He's more interested in you loving him than serving him. That's the number one commandment. Now, commandment number two is, Jesus says, the second commandment is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. He's saying the entire system of obedience to God hangs on two things. One, love God with all your heart. Number two, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the Old Testament in a summary by Jesus himself. What, a, what an astounding statement. But now let's actually, let's look at the last six of the Ten Commandments and you'll find every one of them, that second tablet has to do with loving your neighbor as yourself. Here's the first one, honor your father and mother. Why would you honor your parents? Because you would love them like you would want to be loved. Do not murder. Well, obviously, you're not going to murder somebody who you love like you love yourself. Do not commit adultery. Well, you're not going to steal somebody's wife or their husband if you love your neighbor as yourself. You're not going to run on your run around on your husband or wife if you love them as yourself. Do not steal. Well, that makes sense again. If I love somebody as myself, I don't want to steal from them. Or do not bear false witness. If I love someone as I love myself, I don't want to lie to them any more than I want to be lied to. If number 10 is do not covet, that means this, if my neighbor has something better than I have, I, I, shouldn't, I should be glad for them if I love them as myself. I don't want what they have if I love them as I love myself. So Jesus is answering what's the greatest commandment of the law with two things. Number one, love God with all your heart. Again, how wonderful that is that God would want you to love him more than anything else. And number two, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus then summarizes, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now, the scribe then who asked him the question, 
he has a response to this. So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth, for there is one God, and there is none, no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. Now Jesus was not saying that he was truly converted yet, but Jesus was saying, You're not far. You're, he had a humble spirit. He was teachable. That's where, that's where we need to be. Now, again, I don't know that he had accepted Jesus as the Messiah yet. It seems that he had not yet. But at least Jesus was saying, you're, you're not far. You've got a humble spirit here. That, he was going the right direction. Now, at this point in our question and answer session, so Christ has been asked three questions. The question about taxes, the question about marriage in heaven, and now the greatest commandment of the law. And now Christ is going to turn the tables and he's going to ask his audience, including, now let's remember, there's a number of religious leaders there. He's going to ask them a question. And his question, obviously, as I see it, and I think I'm confident this is so, it's the most fascinating of all. It's not one, again, that you would think about, but it's one with profound implications. So what is Jesus' question to his audience? I, I'm reading again. He says, while the Pharisees were gathered together, and remember, they're the, they're the religious conservatives, so there's at least some of them around still. Jesus asked them, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? So there's the question. Whose son is the Messiah? Now, this question seems to be rather obvious. Almost any Jew of that time period would have been able to answer that question. So they come up very simply with the answer. They said to him, the son of David. That's fine. But now Jesus asked them a follow-up question, which, it, which really they should have thought about far more than they evidently did. He said to them, How then does David in spirit call him Lord? Talking about the Messiah. Why does David in spirit, in spirit means under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now, let me stop there and try to bring you up to speed as to what Jesus is saying. When he says David said this in spirit, he's quoting from Psalm 110 and verse 1. And Psalm 110 verse 1 says basically exactly what Jesus is saying here, and that is the David writing the psalm, he said, the Lord, and that's all caps, that's the word for Jehovah typically, not always, but typically in the Old Testament refers to God the Father. So it says the Lord, that would be the God of Israel, said to my Lord... David's Lord, and this is a different word. It's not the word for the God of Israel. It's used. It's a word that's sometimes used of the God of Israel. It means like master. Um, the word Adonai may be close to or Adon. And so sometimes it's used to refer to a master, uh, the, uh, the, the ruler. Now think about it. David was known, according to Psalm 89, as the highest of all the kings of the earth. And so what David was saying is, there's someone higher than me. The Lord, God of Israel, said to my Lord, said to a ruler higher than me, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. 
whoever this person is, is going to be sitting at God the Father's right hand. And God the Father is going to make this individual's enemies his footstool. I will tell you this, that psalm was well known to be a messianic psalm. Now, what I mean by that is that the scholars of Jesus' day would have, would have widely said that is a prophecy of the coming Messiah. They knew that. That's why Jesus brought up this, this uh, picture. So let me put Messiah in there, and so you get a better idea what Jesus is saying. David wrote, under inspiration, Jesus said, and he's correct, obviously. He said, the Lord, the God of Israel, said to my Lord, the Messiah, the God of Israel, says to the Messiah, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And now Jesus goes on with his question. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? If the Messiah is David's master, if the Messiah, the Christ, is David's Lord, how can he also be his son? Because typically, the descendant is in an inferior position to the ancestor. That would make sense. The son submissive to the father. The scripture goes on and says, no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day on did anyone dare ask him a question anymore. And the common people heard him gladly. Now, what was the answer? To Jesus' question, how could Messiah be the son of David and the Lord of David at the same time? The answer, when you think about it, is profound. To be David's son, the Messiah has to be David's descendant. He's a human. Everybody knew that. But what they may not have considered, and tragically many of them did not understand, was to be David's Lord, Messiah also had to be David's God. He had to be different than a mere human. And so what, if they'd have only got the answer to that question, they would have understood that when Messiah claims to be God, he is not blaspheming, he's telling the truth. Now, it was just a few days later that Jesus is arrested. He's hauled in front of the high priests and all the religious leaders, uh, the bigwigs of the nation. And I don't know, there may have definitely may have been some of those people that were that Jesus asked this question to, because uh, a good, decent amount of those religious leaders would be Pharisees, that had actually heard Jesus' question a few days earlier. But let me then take you to Jesus' trial in front of the, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, the, the, the high priest and the other, uh, it called the Sanhedrin. And I'm starting at verse 63 of Matthew chapter 26. It says, But Jesus kept silent, and the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Are you claiming to be the Messiah and the Son of God, which makes you equal with God? Jesus said to him, it is as you said. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Now, Jesus there is referencing a prophecy in the book of Matthew, chapter 7, verse 13, excuse me, the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, where this individual who is obviously the, the, the Messiah who's going to establish an eternal kingdom is called the Son of Man. 
And he's coming, just like Jesus said in Matthew 26, he's coming in the clouds of heaven. So Jesus is saying, I am that one. I am, in fact, Messiah, Son of God, at the same time. And if they had understood Jesus' question just a couple days earlier, how can the Messiah be both David's Lord and his son, if they'd understood that the Messiah had to be God and man? They should have thought twice before they convicted him of blasphemy. To be David's son, Messiah had to be human. But to be David's Lord, Messiah had to be God. And tragically, they didn't, they didn't get that question answered correctly. Now, what do we conclude from this? Well, we see that the crowd at the temple in Jesus' day had a great privilege. That is, they could ask Jesus questions and hear his answers. And they even got to hear a question from Christ himself. But unfortunately, many in the crowd were looking to entrap Jesus rather than learn anything from him. They were his sworn enemies. They, they, they were not interested in anything that he might teach them. I have to conclude thirdly that um, to pay taxes to imperfect governments is what Jesus told us to do. Jesus also said that there is a resurrection and that the two great commandments in the Old Testament law are to love God with all your heart and to love your neighbor secondly as yourself. In that order, by the way, remember the greatest commandment is to love God. The fact that God would want us to love him, that what a wonderful thing. Fourth thing we got to conclude is Jesus then asked a question that if properly understood would have led his audience to see that Messiah must be God and man at the same time. If they'd only really understood the answer to that question. And let me give you a fifth conclusion. Your answer to the question of Christ's identity, who is Jesus, is the key to your response to Jesus. If Jesus is God, then you can be saved from your sin. Then the reality of his crucifixion was not an accident, because as God, he could have done anything he wanted to do. His crucifixion then was in God's plan. You say, well, why would he do that? Because he came to, first of all, deliver us from the greatest oppression, and that is the oppression of sin. Sin that is destroying the lives of all of us. That's why we die. The Bible says, in Romans chapter 6 and verse uh, chapter 5, verse 12, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world. That would be Adam. Adam was the first guy he brought sin into the world. And death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So why do we die? We die because we're sinners. We die because the curse of sin is upon us all. And sin is, is such a destructive force, it, it, it breaks families apart. Sin is, is why uh, people get hooked on drugs. Sin is why murders take place. It's why we covet our neighbor's wife or our neighbor's house or some other possession that our neighbor has. Sin is the thing that brings guilt and fear and shame. Sin is the great oppressor. And if we had, if Jesus had just come and, and smashed his enemies and given us a free government with all kinds of, of blessings of freedom, we still could be in bondage to our own sin and would still be under the eternal death sentence of sin. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 says, The wages of sin, what we earn from our sin, is death. 
And by the way, death, separation from God, is a physical thing that we all understand, but there is what's called the second death when we're separated from God for all of eternity. That's hell. And Christ came to deliver us from death. So the wages of sin, Romans 6.23 says, is death. But the verse goes on and says this, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And although all of us are under the curse of, the, of, of sin to die physically, we don't all have to die eternally. We can be delivered from our sin and set free from our sin. But your answer to the question of Christ's identity is key to your response to, G to Jesus. If Jesus is God, you can be saved from your sin because he died in your place. And if you believe and understand that, you realize that you actually can be freed from your sin. But if Jesus was a mere man, you're going to face God in your sin. If Jesus is God, then serve him. If he is not, then prepare to meet God without him. And I'll just tell you the truth, that won't go well. May the Lord help you to think on these things. If we can be of any help, don't hesitate to contact us. Uh, John will give you that information when we close. Father, bless these folks. Thank you for the privilege of considering this question and answer session with Christ. Oh, I pray that we would learn much, that souls would be saved as a result, Christians strengthened in their faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Is it not amazing that God would desire your love more than anything else you could give him? When you think of it, that is something we can all give, no matter our age, financial status, or even physical or mental ability. Some of you may be thinking, I know that I should love God, but I know that I do not love him enough. How can I learn to love him more? I would encourage you to simply spend time thinking about God's immense love for you. See his love in the little blessings around you. See his love in friendships and loving people he may have brought into your life. And when times are tough and God's goodness is hard to see at the moment, look back at the cross. Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That demonstration of God's love is not a past event, but a present reality that you can look at every day. May this question and answer session with Christ stir you to love and appreciate the one true God. If you would like some spiritual help like counseling or prayer, you can email us at help at CauckinsBaptistChurch.com. Calkins is spelled C-A-L-K-I-N-S. Again, that email address is help at CauckinsBaptistChurch.com. If you'd like to listen to this message again or send it to a friend, the link to our podcast is at RadioBold.com slash CauckinsBaptist. Our podcast contains not only this series on the life of Christ, but also our pastor's series on the messages that Jesus himself preached. You can listen to and download whatever you want for free. Again, that link to our podcast can be found at RadioBold.com slash CauckinsBaptist. As we leave you today, we pray that this broadcast has been a beacon of hope in your life to point you to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. May God's richest blessings come upon you. Thanks for listening. And everlasting life and light, he frees.